0: Because this is a new world for a lot of people and a lot of these tools are sold for all of the benefits, but we have to ask, do they really do what they say on the tin?
1: Hi there, welcome back to your source for everything and anything public education in Canada. My name is Mia Travers-Hayward, CTF FCA researcher and policy analyst, and I'm very pleased to welcome a special international guest, Dr. Christina Kolklouf, for a timely conversation on digital technologies and how they're impacting teachers and education workers. During our conversation, we also discuss how unions can advocate for the digital rights of workers as technologies such as AI rapidly advance and become further embedded into schools. Widely regarded as a thought leader on the futures of workers and the politics of digital technology, Dr. Christina Colcliffe is the founder of the Why Not Lab and an advocate for the workers' voice and for strong, quality public services. She authored the union movement's first principles on workers' data rights and the ethics of artificial intelligence. Christina is also a fellow of of the Royal Society of Arts in the UK, an advisory board member of the Carnegie Council AI and Equality Initiative a member of the OECD AI Expert Group, a member of the UNESCO Women for Ethical AI Advisory Group, and is affiliated to Copenhagen University. We hope you enjoy our conversation with Christina. Hello, Christina. Thank you so much for joining us today at the CTF FCR office. We are so excited to have you here today.
0: Really, thank you for having me. It's an honor.
1: Just to get started, as a first question, we would love to know how you would define AI, what we're talking about today. So what we have to
0: understand about AI is there's no one definition of AI. What we can do really is think about AI as a recipe. So the system knows what it's going to make. Let's imagine it's going to make tomato soup, for example. It needs instructions. So, it needs to know what to do in what order. So, fry the onions, add the tomatoes. And the ingredients in our soup, that's the data. So, you have data, that's the ingredients, you have the instructions, it's told what to do, and it knows what it's supposed to make in the end. So, AI, you can typically think of it that way, but in more sort of technical terms, hang on here, everybody. It is a set of rules in computer programming code aimed at solving a particular problem or performing a task. Now, if I can just add to the recipe thing, because this is a good thing to think about, your tomato soup will not taste as good if your tomatoes are rotten. So if the data that it relies on are not representative for your culture or for your people, or if they for some reason are historically biased, then the outcome will be biased. Your tomato soup will not taste good if the data, the ingredients were rotten.
1: That's great. And I think it's so helpful to have that analogy because I've noticed personally and what a lot of people have noticed is that AI is right now, it feels like it's at the center of every conversation that we're having, both you know, at work and also I find even just around the table with my family and friends. Mm-hmm. But then I step back sometimes and I think, do we actually even know what it is that we're talking about? So mm-hmm. I think it's so important, particularly the conversation that we're going to have today around how we can support unions and workers with advocating for their rights around AI. I think we can sort of forget that the foundation has to be a firm understanding of what exactly it is that we're advocating for and advocating around. So I really appreciate that. You're welcome.
0: But maybe as well, we should stop saying AI. Right. Because maybe we should be saying digital technologies, because there's a lot of digital technology out there, which is having a lot of impact on your members, which is not AI. It can be machine learning, deep learning, which are subcategories of AI, or it can just be data-driven analysis. So maybe a really good thing, although everybody says AI right now, is that we change that and say digital technologies.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So what I might do is just jump into some of the questions around these digital technologies and specifically the work that you've done, both as a leader in the global labor movement and an advocate for digital rights of workers, but then also more specifically some of your work in education. So I know in 2020, you surveyed education unions throughout the world for Education International, looking specifically at how AI, or maybe we say digital technologies, are impacting the education sector. So I think it would be really helpful to hear from your perspective, based on this research, what do you think are some of the key impacts that digital technologies, and maybe even thinking particularly about AI, if possible... What kind of impacts they're having on the education system and education workers specifically?
0: Yeah, what was very clear from that report, but also the work I've done later for Education International and others, is that there's, of course, a sharp increase in the use of education technology. In short, we say edtech for that. And it's all kinds of technology. We know from the pandemic, Zoom, for example, or Teams or whatever you have been using, but also more elaborate systems around individual learning, around, you know, cameras that are in the classroom, keeping an eye on every single student, but also the teacher assessment technologies. I mean, there's been tons of them. Another thing we found out in that research was that the consultation of the teachers in which digital systems to use, if any, why, and for what purpose, that across the world was very. Teachers were simply not consulted on what maybe their needs are. What technologies would they prefer? They were just asked to use them. And then we saw a sharp divide in who, what schools, for example, were using these tools. Now, no surprise maybe, but there was a divide between the richer neighborhoods and the poorer neighborhoods. But there was also a divide between the urban areas and the rural areas. So where in the richer and the urban areas, they had more technology than the rest. And another thing that stood out was that teachers' training needs on all things digital were overwhelmingly not met. So they were asked to use technologies, but they were not trained in using them or in understanding them, right? There was one thing that stood out in that report, which has really sort of struck me and is something that Education International and others must dig into. And that is that the majority of respondents to this survey that we did said that education technology would increase the autonomy of teachers. Now, this really is against all other examples from all other sectors where technology telling you what to do in what order and when is, of course, attacking the autonomy and professionalism of the individual worker. So that one there was really quite a surprise. And then to no surprise to the listeners, I can imagine work intensification was a problem. So this blurring of work life, family life, this always-on culture of the digital technology was really leading to teacher's Working time being increased. And then finally, one of the sort of conclusions that stood out is that the whole idea around negotiating for our data rights, for the right to have a seat at the table in the use of these technologies, that was poorly taken up by the unions.
1: Yeah, I think there's so much there that feels so applicable to what education workers are experiencing across Canada right now. And I think. In particular, what you're saying about the lack of consultation, about what technologies are being deployed in schools. But then a related issue is that these technologies are being deployed, but then there's a lack of training around how to use them. And so we have heard from teachers that this can then lead to increased workload versus when the message is really being sent that, oh, this is supposed to make your job more efficient, reduce administration and stuff like that. But in fact, I don't think that's really what we're hearing. Exactly. So, I guess that leads very well into my next question, which was What would you say that educators and the unions that support them should know or consider when they are engaging with and using AI or other digital technologies?
0: I think my first recommendation would be to adopt a critical but constructive attitude to these technologies. The worst thing we can do is to blindly use them. So, you know, what's quite striking around the world is when you do become critical, you automatically become labelled a Luddite. And, you know, I say, great, please call me a Luddite, because if we look at history, what the Luddites wanted to do was break down this technology and rebuild it in the interest of the people. And that same quest is a quest that we should be on today. But of course, the moment you ask some nitty gritty questions, or you ask sort of, hang on, how does this affect my privacy or something? You are seen as somebody backward or against change, but hold on tight there. Be a proud Luddite because we need those critical, constructive questions. So, what questions should we be asking? One of them, firstly, to school leadership or the authorities who've asked you to use this tool is, oh, okay, hi, who are the developers of this tool? Do they have access to our data? Are they allowed in the contract to repurpose this? How does this influence the children's, but also us as educators, our future, but also current work opportunities or life opportunities? Who amongst leadership here is responsible for the use of this tool? Let's say something goes wrong, who should we turn to? Now, this might sound like a really simple question, but trust me, in many circumstances, that question has no clear answer. How is leadership at the school or the education authorities using this data? Are they using it to evaluate us? If so, how? What profiles are they making? You know, you can add up if you think of lots and lots of data that's collected from when you log on to this system to how you use it, to what responses the children or the students give. All of this gets turned into aggregated knowledge. How are they using that? Are they using it to evaluate your performance, for example? And then, of course, you know, ask the question, well, those profiles, are they being used by others? Are they being sold? Is our data sold? So some of these nitty-gritty questions, but of course, they're all about protecting your professionalism, your autonomy, your privacy, but also, and importantly, the privacy of the young students.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Those are such important questions to ask, and I think it
0: feels like a really important priority. That is such an important priority. And I also think you know, the majority of school management or education authorities They don't want to do harm, right? But also they have been persuaded by maybe a very persuasive consultancy company or somebody to buy this tool and deploy it. Maybe they don't know what they don't know. Maybe they haven't asked the questions that I've just asked. So we're in sort of at a crossroads where we all need to up the ante, so to speak. We all need to engage in these new terms and terminologies. And when we ask these questions, prepare yourself that leadership can't answer them immediately. But that's okay. Give them time. But don't let them off the hook, so to speak. (laughs) Because this is a new world for a lot of people. And a lot of these tools are sold for all of the benefits. But we have to ask, do they really do what they say on the tin? Right?
1: Yeah. And it sounds, unfortunately, in so many cases, teachers based on I think this was one of the findings you spoke to about in the report is that teachers and unions just aren't being asked to inform those conversations about what is a benefit and what's more of a risk. And, And isn't that a tragedy? Yeah,
0: I mean, if anybody knows what is good in relation to the teaching profession, it's the educators themselves. Yet they're not being consulted. And I think this is unfortunately not just happening in Canada. This is happening all over the world in all sectors. And this is something I think should be a top priority and say, hey, we know. So do ask us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I guess thinking a bit more specifically about the role of unions in this fight for having the teacher's voice in those conversations, what is the role that education unions play in protecting the labor rights of teachers as we see this sort of what feels like an increasingly rapid advancement in these technologies? And related to that, are there specific issues that unions should be prioritizing at the bargaining table?
0: This is another great question. I, <laughs> I love your question. So so I think first and foremost, we have to understand that we're in this together. So the union should take the aggregated responsibility for sort of saying, do we all know, are we comfortable with what is data? What's an algorithm? What's probability analysis? You know, what's AI or what's ed tech? So a really good first step would be to, you know, create some infographics or something on that. So we all speak the same language. You know, there's no need for all of your members to individually look up on the internet, what is data, you know, that that type of thing. And when we have that vocabulary in place and we've done sort of a critical analysis, what's good about this, what are potential, you know, problems with this, then I think when you're ready to get to the negotiation table, there's two probably main topics that I would be, no, three, actually four. No, they're five. (laughs) No, okay, I'll stop. But there's some of them. And one of them has to do with your data rights. So... Connected with that is your right to know what data is being collected, for what purposes, what happens to it when that purpose has been fulfilled. Is any third party, i.e. the developers of these edtech systems, do they have access to your data? What rights do you have to edit the data? Let's say if you imagine your wage slip or whatever information your bosses have on you, it might say that well, you're married and you live there and there. What if you've got divorced and you've moved? This is a very simple indication. Oh, that's data. You should have a right to always know what's logged in the files and that you have a right to edit it. And then something really fascinating has happened recent. And that is, and some of you might laugh when you hear me say this, but I don't really praise the United States for much of these days. But one of the things they've got right is in California. And in California, they've just made amendments to their data protection regulation, which has included as the only data protection in the world, a decommodification clause. And this is converted to more plain language that you have a right to opt out of the selling of your data. So data is being brought and sold like for millions and millions of dollars a year. One of the biggest data brokers, companies who buy and sell data, they were interviewed this year. And they say they have now intimate detail about 350 billion people across the world.
1: That's frightening.
0: It is frightening. So data. How can we prohibit that the developers of these systems can sell our data, for example? So that's one of the big issues. The second one is addressing this finding in the report that teachers aren't consulted, what is happening on the floor. So you should be consulted in what should be, but by law isn't right now, this continuous evaluation of how these systems are actually working and the impact they're having. And then the third thing, which is probably the lowest hanging fruit of all of this, is how do we ensure a good balance between work life and private life? How do we address the always-on culture of these technologies and not just talk about sustainable work, but actually turn that around and say sustainable private life? We should have energy to live our private lives. And here I want to add, and I know I'm talking and talking now, but I want to add a little funny or interesting thought. The composer de he said once that music is what is made between the notes, in the pause. And we should reflect on that. We should have a right to be free from algorithmic manipulation.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think one of the challenges is because... Of, and correct me if I'm wrong, but because of the way that a lot of these technologies have just been woven into the system almost, you know, without consultation, without us even sometimes realizing we could have a choice. And it's almost hard to conceptualize what that life looks like, what a sort of life in which we enjoy digital rights and the option to be free from. I can't remember exactly how you put it, but just live between the yes. (laughs) (laughs) Still wrapping my head around some of that terminology, but so I guess that has me thinking about this idea of, let's say, teachers enjoying the right to having their privacy Mm. protected and their data protected, which I think is a huge concern, both for teachers themselves but also for students. So I'm curious, what do you think it really looks like for teachers to have their privacy protected? as these new technologies, and in turn, all of these new, all these private companies are introduced into their schools at what feels like an accelerating rate, potentially.
0: So what it would look like if we had managed to reshape uh, this current mode of digitalization, of course, what it would mean is that the respect for teachers was restored. They would be consulted on how can we tap into the potentials, the benefits of these digital technologies, but do so with privacy at heart, with human rights at heart. So you could imagine a responsible school leadership, for example, would be really discussing, conversing with the teachers around this technology, that it was very clear, very transparent around what is this technology doing, that they had very clear contractual relations with the developers around, you know, you can't resell the data, you can't repurpose the data, all of that. So we stop that commodification so that we really could as I said, tap into the, the benefits without having the exploitation. And this is something we have to realize as handy as all of these tools are, they are exploitative current.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it Is so helpful to hear your perspective on this because this is part of allowing us to get to that point where we can start to develop that shared language and that common understanding of what that looks like. And I like what you were saying about Luddites. I find I hear that word now more than ever, particularly in the wake of Chat GPT and AI entering the conversation. But I think a lot of people sort of think about it as the complete rejection. And so I think it's worth sort of reminding ourselves that it is ultimately about just reshaping it and finding a way that actually has humanity and equity and. Yeah, at its core, really. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And go back to the rotten tomatoes,
0: right? So if the data that goes into these systems are not representative of your culture or of your community and so on, then the outcome will be equally as rotten. So if, for example, the data that the system has been trained on is bias or discriminative, so will the outcome be. And we can observe that the vast majority of digital systems that are being used are marginalizing the already marginalized. And this is surely not something we should accept.
1: Yeah. I feel like there is so much that we could dig into, but I'm conscious of time. So I might just start to wrap up and ask what you see as the next steps for unions to advocate for their digital rights. And I think related to that, we'd also love to hear about what your next step is in Hmm. that journey.
0: Thank you. I think let's create that common vocabulary. So really start by creating, helping one another to understand what's data, what's AI, all of those things we've been discussing. And then negotiating with the authorities, with your employers, with each province, wherever you may, around your data rights, around the mandatory requirement to consult with you, not just once, but on an ongoing basis. And then don't forget, we are a big union family across the world and Public Services International, one of the other global unions, has actually created an online, free, accessible to everybody, bargaining hub of collective bargaining clauses related to all things digital. So have a look at that. Get inspired. The next steps for me, and this is a really pertinent issue, is to address a gaping hole in a lot of our governmental discussions around the world that they want to somehow find a way to certify these systems so they're allowed into our markets, education systems, but any system, any AI, digital technology system (laughs) to allow them into the market. But what none of our governments, really none of them are seriously discussing is How do we acknowledge that the majority of these systems are fluid and changeable? And if they can learn something, they can also learn the wrong thing. So if we want to protect human rights, workers' rights, citizens, then we have to continuously govern. And this is one of the sort of opposites of our time. These technologies are sold to us as being efficient, as being productive, as decreasing time spent on routine tasks, yet to get it right takes time. So that will be the bridge that I want to connect is making governance, inclusive governance, i.e. including the voices of you as educators, even of the students, making that mandatory in the use of education table.
1: Yeah, all such important considerations. And I know you have a lot of resources, particularly around co-governance, that I think could be really useful for our listeners. So we'll put links to everything that we've spoken about in the show notes so people can access them. Wonderful. And I do feel like we've only really scratched the surface of this topic and that there's so much else that we could talk about, but you've left us with so much food for thought. So I think we'll wrap up here, and just a huge thank you, Christina, for stopping by our offices, for giving us all of these incredible insights. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you.
0: Thank you for having me. Good luck with your work.
1: Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode. We hope you enjoyed this discussion with Dr. Christina Kolkluff. To learn more, be sure to check out the show notes for the links to the following resources. Public Services International's Digital Bargaining Hub, as referenced by Christina, which is a global resource of collective bargaining clauses on the use of AI. You'll also find Christina's report for Education International titled Teaching with Tech, the Role of Education Unions in Shaping the Future. And finally, a link to Christina's website, the Why Not Lab, where you can learn more about Christina's work and also download the guide on co-governance of algorithmic systems. Thank you so much for listening and for tuning in to your source.